Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are talking all about vintage guitars, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shedler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Vintage is a term that um, probably didn't come out until maybe the early 70s. Um, they were just used instruments, and there were very few dealers that dealt in um, these older instruments in the very beginning um, that specialized in these things. And um, as the interest grew, I mean, originally there were only a few stores in the country that carried these. And then as the interest grew, the word vintage became associated with these instruments. and. Uh, and now it's, you look in magazines like Vintage Guitar and there's probably 400 dealers that are advertising in there. So uh, it's, uh, it's become quite a business. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Music History Project. It's exciting to have an opportunity to talk all about vintage guitars today. And I'm really excited that we started off with one of the gurus of vintage guitars, certainly an expert on understanding the history as well as appraisal and that's uh, norm harris from norm's rare guitars in tarzana california it's a pretty famous shop i see it popping up in social media all the time well they also have like um television episodes out of that store really yeah i've seen like two or three of them that's pretty cool it's yeah awesome. i see like the famous pop stars of, or guitarists or whatever always going in there and trying out guitars and norm's giving them like the rare ones from the back and stuff like that so yeah cool place and a great guy so neat way to start this exciting episode and thanks to Michelle. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> for putting all this together. Uh, today we're going to hear from uh, several real uh, important people as far as the movement, as I call it, of vintage guitars within the music products industry. And thanks to the interviews that have been conducted for uh, the NAM Oral History Program, we're able to hear from a lot of the, the guys and ladies, uh, including some who are no longer with us to keep their memory alive and uh, probably etch in stone, if you will, a little bit of their own contributions to what we now refer to as the vintage guitar market. So today, who are we going to be hearing from, Michelle? Today we're going to be hearing from a lot of different people. Norman Harris, which you just heard from, George Grun, Frank Ford, Fred Oster, Stan Jay, Owen Ray, Richard Gellis, David Cult, and Kay Coster. Should be a great lineup. And all of this really to help document this extraordinary movement within the music products industry for which used instruments became vintage instruments and uh, sought after for a lot of different reasons. And I think all of these guys and Kay have a, uh, a way of describing that 
uh, their role within that and watching it grow over time. And who better to start with than George Groon, one of the most iconic vintage guitar collectors and experts out there. So we're going to hear from George talking about what vintage is to him, and then we're going to hear from Frank Ford answering the same question. A bit of a silly question, but I bet you you have a very good answer for this. What is your definition of vintage? Is there a clarification? Well, there's not, that's not a silly question at all because vintage is not simply a function of age. I deal in what I consider three categories of instruments, vintage used and new. New is easy enough to define. It'd be new. It's got a warranty. You get it from the manufacturer. It hasn't been owned by anybody else. That's new. That's straight. Used is not especially old and is a model that is still currently available. You could go out and buy a new one, but this is a pre-owned one. It's not collectible. It's pre-owned. It has no warranty. And you could go out and buy a new one like it, or pretty well equivalent. You're going to pay less for this than for the new one. It may be an excellent utility instrument, just like a two-year-old Lincoln Town Car may be perfectly good, has monetary value, has no collector's item value, but it has monetary value and it has utilitarian value. Whereas if you had a early 50s gullwing Mercedes, it might bring a million dollars, but if you wanted to drive from New York to California, you know, I don't think I'd recommend doing it in that. You might scratch it. You might put miles on it and wear and tear. I just wouldn't recommend it. Vintage is like the Gullwing Mercedes. We deal plenty of vintage instruments. But vintage pieces are those which are not equivalent to the new and not something you can order new. If you can order it new and it's fully equivalent, it's not vintage. But it's not simply a function of age. It's not where you can say antiques are 100 years old by definition or more, and otherwise it's not an antique. I don't deal antique instruments especially. I'm dealing collectible vintage. And we do, we do deal plenty of new and used. I don't want to make it seem like we're so snooty that all we have is the new or the vintage. We have plenty of new ones. We have plenty of used ones. Uh, but vintage electrics are at least the golden era. And golden era may well be a better term than vintage. Vintage electrics tend to be those from the 50s on into perhaps the mid-60s, but not anything much beyond that. I appreciate that. Um, That's a good clarification. So if the so vintage acoustics are pre-World War II. Hmm. The ones from the 50s and 60s for acoustics, they're not the golden era. The best Martins are 20s and 30s. The Dobros are late 20s through the 30s. Really, the golden era of acoustic 
guitars for American manufacturing is 20s and 30s, because before the 20s, before even the mid-20s, they were not steel string instruments. They were gut string instruments, which are not truly the golden era of gut string instruments either, because that is more Spanish, classical, and flamenco. So for me, the great banjos are five-string banjos of the 1890s to 1910, and then the great banjos of the 20s and 30s. The great mandolins are the Gibsons from about 1910 through 19, late 20s, not 30s. But the great Martin and Gibson flat top and other acoustic guitars, including some of the great jazz guitars, are 30s. With the exception of D'Angelico and Stromberg, where it's 40s and 50s, and D'Angelico up to 64 when he died, with one maker being sort of the link to the past, which is Jimmy DeQuisto, who died in 95 but had apprenticed to D'Angelico, and he's sort of the first of the golden eras, or the linked to the first golden era. But today, there are a lot of very good makers. There are folks like Monteleone, Benedetto, and numerous others. You, know, you can name dozens of them who do very good work, but they're not golden era. They're fine instruments, which today you'd almost have to say we may be in a second golden era. There are more good builders today than ever before in the history of the instrument. But are any of them making a better acoustic guitar for a flat top or a mandolin? than was done pre-World War II? Not in my opinion, they're not. I think they're just simply not reproducing the sound of a 1934 or 5 Martin today. Some of them have beautiful, neat workmanship, but they have not captured that sound. They have not duplicated the sound of a lore F5 mandolin either. They have banjos that sound pretty darn good, but they're not better than a 1932 or 3 flathead Granada. So the golden era there for the acoustics is pre-World War II. Does anybody today make a electric guitar that is fully equal to a good 52 or 3 Tele or a real 58 or 9 Sunburst Les Paul, my opinion remains, no, they don't. So there are some folks making very nice guitars now, but they have not equaled that. Is there a difference between, is vintage and collectible always the same? I'm thinking of if someone signs a guitar, it doesn't necessarily make it a vintage guitar, but it may make it a collectible. If someone signs a guitar, that's one of the least interesting things to <laughs> me imaginable. Almost all of these signed guitars are crapola guitars with some artist's signature. And it's just like today I got a call from a woman who has an Epiphone guitar signed by Winona and George Strait. It's a Korean cheap guitar. And it's signed by two artists who share at least one trait, and that they ain't dead yet. 
And there are lots more signatures left in both of these people. And they can sign infinitely more as long as they're physically able to do so, and they seem perfectly willing to do so. Signatures don't amount to flop. Now, if you have a guitar that was owned and used extensively by a famous artist, it can certainly have memorabilia collector's value that goes above and beyond the value of the guitar otherwise. But that is an entirely different market than the vintage instrument market. It's not a market I tend to pursue. It's not a market I care about at all. But I recognize that it is a market. But to me, that's sort of like the Jacqueline Onassis auction where people spent 10 times or 100 times what item X would bring, but this one belonged to Jackie or even might have been John's golf clubs. Ooh, well, people would pay huge money for that. But they were just basically nothing special golf clubs. You know, that's not my thing. I'm interested in make, model, year, degree of originality, structural condition, cosmetic condition, rarity of the model, historical significance of the model, at some point maybe how it sounds, but generally the reputation of the maker and model. I'm interested in instruments by famous makers, not instruments owned by famous people. And it is a different approach. I could care less who owned this particular 59 Sunburst Les Paul or this particular D45 Martin or F5 or whatever. That's not the point. Although, yes, I've owned instruments that were owned by famous performers. I've had a fair number of famous performers trade in one for another. And I'll admit that sometimes I can get a bit extra. But that's not what drives my business. Although, yeah, I have things like, if you want Dave Macon's original banjo, one of his custom-made ones, yeah, there's one in the room over there. But it's not for sale. It's mine. And I'm keeping it. But I do have one of Dave Macon's banjos. And it's, it's neat, but it's also neat because it's a custom-made Gibson that was made in 1940. And it is a piece that was specifically custom-made by Gibson for Uncle Dave, who was one of the bigger stars of the Opry at that time. And it's an interesting historical instrument, regardless of whether it was Dave's or not. But when I started out, many of the instruments that were golden era were not really all that old. I opened up the shop in 1970, and I started collecting guitars in 63. Well, in 63, pre-CBS strats were still being made. A Sunburst Les Paul from 60 was a three-year-old guitar. Even in 70, when I opened the store, a Fender Broadcaster was 20 years old. A 60 Les Paul was 10 years old. A Dot 335 was, from 60 would be a 10-year-old one. The oldest dot there was for, you know, they didn't come out till 58 for dot 335, so it would have been a 12-year-old guitar. So I knew that these were vintage, 
And I referred to them as such. I knew they were collectible. I knew they were dramatically different from the new ones, especially in 1970, because the new stuff in 70 was some of the worst ever. The absolute worst era in the history of American musical instrument manufacturing was definitely, without a doubt, the early to mid-70s. Today's instruments are much better. They're not better than the electrics of the 50s. They're not better than the acoustics of the 20s and 30s, but they're a heck of a lot better than the instruments that were made 30 years ago. Age is not what makes a piece collectible. If the model is no longer in production or if the maker is dead, it can become collectible in a hurry. When Jimmy DeQuisto died, his stuff went up. But even when he was still alive, he was making less than 10 guitars a year. People realized that those things were as close to instant collectible as you could get, especially in his later years when he no longer wanted to make any of his earlier designs. So in effect, you could say that those were discontinued when he was still alive. Mm, that's interesting. So collectible and even vintage is not simply a function of age because I have to realize that when I opened up my store, even in 1940, D28 or D45 pre-World War II was a 30-year-old instrument. Today, a 30-year-old instrument is 1970. A 20-year-old instrument is 1980. 10-year-old instrument is 1990. Well, when I opened up, a 10-year-old instrument could be a dot .335 or a Sunburst Les Paul. A 20-year-old instrument would be a broadcaster for a solid body. The first commercially viable solid body that ever was didn't come out until 20 years before I opened my doors. And 30-year-old instrument, if you're getting into 1940, even the Lore F5s were, they weren't ancient, That's a very good but we were keenly aware that they were collectible. So that's a long-winded answer to what is vintage. <laughs> it's a great answer. We have those little uh, um, bits of nomenclature that we toss around. Vintage is a, vintage is a cute one. You know, what, what's a vintage guitar? And I have, a, I have a definition that works for me, and uh, it's a common definition. A vintage guitar is a guitar that's old enough that uh, I would not have been able to buy it new. Um, okay. What does that mean? It was made before I was about 15 or so. And that's a vintage guitar. Everything else is just a used guitar. And that's a movable definition, obviously. And I, I think it's, it still fits me. Okay, that was uh, Frank Ford from Griffin Guitars in Palo Alto, California, one of the pioneers of the vintage guitar movement. And before that, we heard from George Grun, who I always like to say, wrote the book. <laughs> um, I mean, imagine having enough uh, gumption, if that's the right word. He is from Tennessee. I think I can use the word gumption um, to actually write down all the serial numbers and his idea of the woods and his information that he gathered about measurements and so on. Nobody touched that with a 10 foot pole in the late 1960s, except for George Grun. And uh, as I remember, the second edition had two corrections, both of which he claimed were typos. So um, he was the right guy to do it, um, but an amazing resource uh, to, to this day, continuing to contribute to vintage guitar magazine uh, you'll see his name in articles 
And I think he's actually working on another book as well. So a great resource for us. And we've done a couple of interviews with him for the oral history program. So I was real happy that we could include him. And of course, Frank Ford is also one of those guys at the very beginning of that transition that Norm referred to at the top of our podcast, which is they were once called used instruments. And because there was a value put on them and because people were seeking out certain makes, the the traditional one is pre-CBS Fender and pre-war Martins. uh, That really kind of ushered in this desire for people to seek out specific instruments. And so we're going to continue with that same concept and listening to a few more of the folks that we were able to interview. What's our next segment, Michelle? The next segment is just going to be the history of the vintage market and what actually makes vintage great. I really enjoyed this one as somebody who does not necessarily have a huge background in music, um, the understanding of how guitars are built, things like that. It was really interesting to hear how each person has a different perspective on what exactly is it about vintage that makes it great. Awesome. So we're going to hear from Fred Oster telling us all about that. I think you have to separate the acoustic vintage market from the electric vintage market. Mm. Both markets were doing rather nicely for years. And of course, a nice upswing. And acoustic guitars probably, um, you know, you, you could watch them move up at a nice steady curve. But at some point in, I guess, the, it seemed like the late 90s, early 2000s, electric guitars just went like this. And the more it went up like this, people were going, oh, gee, I better get in on that. Look at, look at, look, they're going really, they're going like crazy. My, like my, my Les Paul Custom that was worth, you know, $9,000 is now worth 15. Who knows where that's gonna go? And, you know, and then the next one he says, God, now they're worth 30. And they're right up there. And then what's gonna happen to anything that does that? It will do that. Mm. Quite predictable. Mm. Acoustics never did that. They went up nice and steady. And I would say yes, during the financial crisis of, the, of 08 and so on, acoustic guitar prices leveled out. And by definition, any investment item that is level is that you're actually losing on a little bit because it's not going up. Mm. But they didn't people that had acoustic instruments didn't feel they were losing any money. The people that invested heavily in electrics were losing money hand and fist because nobody would buy them. Also, they'd come out of the woodwork. There were tons of them floating around, so they were no longer looking rare. And when you looked at models um, where they made thousands of them, they really weren't rare. Well, the only thing that was rare is maybe a custom color that was rare. Um, and when it came down to it, for those of us who deal mostly in acoustics, electric guitars are pretty much two pieces of wood spray painted, bolted together with some electronics. And they had a low intrinsic value. And Leo Fender would have thought nothing of saying to you, it's, it's, a, it's a portable thing. You can take the neck off and put another one on in 10 minutes because you know, if your neck broke, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a functional item. You know, and it doesn't sound like anything without an amplifier. So it has no intrinsic value. It's just a thing that you can use. And acoustic guitar people are into every little nuance of sound. 
and everything that they do changes it a little bit, and they're really into that. You know, one year brass and brass bridge pins become big because they like a certain sound, and another year, you know, brass nuts or whatever, and it's really fun. But I, and I'm sure electric guitar guys go through the same thing to some extent with a different pickup, but if you're looking at value, as soon as you've switched out anything to electric guitar, it's considered a big sin. So it, you lose a ton of value. It's like, you know, it, it's, a, it's an unusual mentality that I never understood. With an acoustic guitar, the people that are into acoustics are not as fanatical. You can switch out a bridge. And it, yes, it's nice if it had the original bridge, but maybe somebody shaved it down. So now you put another one on just like the original, and then you kept the value, unless you had some idiot put an oversized bridge on it. So um, good repairs, well done by competent people with original style materials, um, things that look correct, same size, and so on. They're not a sin, they're just maintenance. Ebony bridges crack, put another one on, it's maintenance. But if you switch out the wiring on an electric guitar, all of a sudden, electric guitar guys are like, oh, there's a different capacitor. Well, and your hero, you know, like your hero would say, Neil Young, who was your hero because he played a Black Les Paul, who knows what his roadies did to that guitar over the years. I'm sure to be on the road that many years with those guitars, things got done. So it's, it's an interesting disconnect to me between the, the people that are into collecting those things. And they're also the people that are most likely to have jumped on the bandwagon when things went up. They just went up mercilessly and they went down mercilessly. So acoustic guys, they know that if it just, it, it's not the same world. That was uh, one of the great experts of vintage guitars in our world. That's Fred Oster out there in uh, Philadelphia with Vintage Instruments is the name of his company. His store is absolutely amazing. If you ever have the opportunity to go, it is vintage itself. I think it goes back to the 1800s. I think it's five floors. It used to be a home uh, of a very wealthy person, obviously, and he has converted it to the most amazing showroom uh, that I've ever seen. And as you can tell, very passionate about being involved in the music industry, and it was a delight to have captured that interview. Moving forward, we're going to hear from another new voice. Um, next up, we're going to hear from Stan Jay. What can you tell us about him, Dan? Well, he started uh, with some help from Hap Kuffner, a thing called the Mandolin Brothers <laughs> in Staten Island that is probably well known, one of the first mail order uh vintage guitar companies as well as having a wonderful showroom there we lost stan uh back in 2014 and it's really neat to hear his voice again because he really was a very wonderful person very helpful to me as i was getting started at the uh, nam headquarters working on this oral history program he gave me a whole list of people that if you're going to talk about vintage guitars you got to talk about these guys so i thought this is a great opportunity to tell you that thanks to uh 
um, Mr. J. We were able to get some other interviews that we won't be hearing from today during this podcast. But if you're interested at all in this topic, you should check out the keyword tag for vintage guitars on the NAMM website because I'm going to give you a list of some of the, these are some of the people that uh, Stan J helped us get. Uh, Walter and Christy Carter, Mike Ladd, Chris Martin, of course, Ed Roman, Michael Simmons, Matt Uinoff, Jimmy Webb, Stan, uh, Stanley Warbin, who's sort of his buddy, and uh, one of my favorites that we were able to get, thanks to Stan, was Harry West, who also passed away that same year, uh, 19, I mean 2014. He had um, fine musical instruments in North Carolina, and as Stan often told me, this was the leader of the pack. Harry was the guy who really kind of defined what vintage was in the very early days. So having an opportunity to interview him was great. And um, so check out those interviews. Mike, where did they go to find that? You can just head to nam.org slash library and click on advanced search, and then you can search through all of our tags there. Or if you're already on an oral history video, you can just scroll to the bottom and see which tags are associated with that person and then go from there. Awesome. So let's hear from Stan Jay. Well, we love these older instruments and we knew that these older instruments sounded better. They had all of the properties that anyone who would want such an instrument would have wanted greater tonal range, more complexity of sound, greater sustain, greater volume in most cases. And in addition, they're beautiful, just gorgeous. And when we first started in 1971, in the first, certainly the first decade, decade and a half, it was a time of tremendous opportunity to be able to find these instruments. They were everywhere. I once made a bet with my former partner that if we stopped the car, we were driving in New Jersey, and I said, if, we, if I were to stop the car and you knock on the door of the house that we stop at, that I would bet that the odds are about one in three that they would have a fretted instrument for sale. And he said, he took the bet. And so we stopped the car, I don't know, somewhere in New Jersey, some little town, and he knocks on the door, and the person who answers the door says, I don't, but my next door neighbor does. So we walked to the next door neighbor, and the next door neighbor said, I have a mandolin banjo in the trunk of my car that I was going to bring to, a, uh, to an auction sale or to a, to a, you know, like in New Jersey they have uh, English Town and, and things like that where they sell used, that's like the, the eBay of their time, except you really sold it live. Um, and, uh, and I was proven right. And it wasn't something we wanted because it was a no-name mandolin banjo, but it was interesting that I was just dead on with that notion that if, but that was then. And, um, and so they have this like this stocked trout stream. You, just, you didn't need any lure, you just you know, reached down and you found a, a really great American fretted instrument by a good brand. But, um, the, that time has gone and now the, the, uh, the, the hatchery has been picked rather clean of fine pieces. And they're really deeply embedded in the woodwork now. It's not so easy to find the kinds of things that we were finding on an almost daily basis back in the 70s. Now you have to wait for it to come around. And now the prices of these things have, have multiplied anywhere from four times to ten times. You know, banjos that we were selling for, for I guess at that time maybe $1,000. Some of them are now $100,000. And that's a heck of, a, of, a, of an increase in value. Because people finally caught on that these were rare and that there are not that many in circulation 
and that they, they typify the highest level of quality that that product has ever encountered, that's ever been, been able to achieve. Mm. And um, we were always advising our customers, this is a good investment. You, you will not regret in the future having bought it, but you may regret looking back and saying, I should have bought it. And we said that, oh, thousands, tens of thousands of times to our customers. And some of them took the advice and some of them didn't. There was a book by a guy named Ball called The American Vintage Collector, and I may have the title slightly skewed, but it's something like that, a small paperback. And, um, and one of our competitors, we were all given a chance, there was an initial edition and we all spoke eloquently about the marketplace and how it was developing in the 70s. But in the second edition, they asked us for our follow-up comments. And one of our competitors took two and a half pages of single-spaced seven-point type to say how pessimistic he was about the market and the direction of the market. He even mentioned us. He said, there are these people called Mandolin Brothers, and they feel that you should just buy with abandon because these things will, will inevitably go up in value. But I don't think so. And when we had been given a chance to read his comments before submitting ours, we left the entire page blank, and in the middle of the page, and I'd be glad to show this to you, it said, if we had a million dollars to spend right now, we'd spend it all on American vintage shredded instruments. And that was prescient, because if we had a million dollars to spend in 78 or whatever year that was, it would probably be worth about 40 million today. And that was the right thing to do, and that was the right advice to give. But the market has, as you know, changed. It's harder to find fine vintage pieces. The value of the pieces have increased fourfold to, to tenfold to a hundredfold, depending on what it is. And um, I think it's great that the public recognizes, or at least the aficionados recognize, that the value is in these instruments. We always used to say a lot. Gee, a Stradivarius violin at that time was $1.5 million but this Lloyd Laura 5 mandolin is, is only $5,000. What's that about? You know, this is the best of its kind, and why is it only $5,000 when a Stradivarius is millions? And because we were in the infancy of the market, what you said is correct. What people perceive now as vintage was then perceived of as used, and it wasn't the same thing. And so we uh, kind of initiated the notion, not alone, but, but a large part of it, uh, that these had value and that these were from a period that would never be duplicated again. And that you have to pay attention to that, because if you don't, you lose an opportunity, lost opportunity, to get a hold of the best there is. Some of the happiest people that I know are people who made the decision to buy Lloyd Lure F5's Martin D28 Herringbones and uh, Gibson Mastertone flathead banjos back in the 70s and 80s when they were affordable and are now sitting on portfolios that are worth a lot of money. But they play, and I, and I want to make that point very clear, that we do not ever sell to an individual who's buying purely as an investor, who's only buying them for their potential to grow in value. Everyone we sell to plays. No matter what they do for a living, no matter where they live, they love these instruments for what they're capable of doing. And that has never, ever been breached. That has never been not true. It's always true. <clears throat> they love playing. Scott Chinnery, who was one of the most generous of people and, and perhaps America's most uh, uh, dedicated collector, who died uh, unfortunately very young, loved to play his instruments. He'd go into his museum room and pick up a, a Diacristo or a D'Angelico and he played jazz and he was pretty good. And he would enjoy the sound and the neck and the feel and the playability and the, all of the 
all of the things that Judea uh, Angelica or Di Cristo excels at. Of course, in his case, he could also have Jimmy Di Cristo come over and tweak it and come to his parties. And, and he had great parties. And uh, he would invite all the dealers and all the artists. And I remember going to one of his parties. Johnny Winter was there to play. And, and I was sitting at a table, just randomly, and who was at the table? Scotty Moore, Elvis Presley's guitar player. And I said, Scotty Moore, you are a hero to us, and your, your presence here is like overwhelming to me. And he said, Stan, I hear I'm on the cover of your catalog this year, and I'd love a copy. <laughs> so, and I thought that was the best. The, the best. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. That is pretty cool. <laughs> but that, but that was Scott Chinnery. He did everything in a flamboyant manner, and he drove a Hummer back before they were popular or even available. They were still military, and he had the Batmobile in his garage. And he was a great guy, and a very he was amused to the arts because he had oh I don't remember the number, but thirty something um, luthiers in the United States make one color guitar out of this one blue color that you get from Constantine's, and he specified that it be eighteen inches wide and. But everybody, all the majors made him a guitar, and they did beautiful, beautiful guitars, some of which were novel, where new ideas were, were developed just to be able to please this collector. And so he was, um, he did for our industry what the, the, the Medici did, and you know, the great, the great uh, patrons did in the 1500s and 1600s and so on. So he's a remarkable person, and we miss him. So that was Stan Jay. Next, you're going to hear from Owen Ray from Royce Music House in Australia and Frank Ford. I still have to this day a, a magnificent Epiphone Riviera made in the in the Gibson factory. And but when I brought it in 70, I think it might have been 72, you know, I got the tar piece and tore it away and threw the bridge away and put on a new modern bridge and put on good machine heads. And I wish I'd never have done it because we didn't know. But we were doing that. A friend of mine has a, a 59 Strat. And I got that and I changed the, the, the bridge insert through the fender ones where I put the, the new vanadium ones which I used in the, in the 70s in it. I probably took $10,000 off the value of it. But we didn't know in those days. No one. But as it, it, it has just evolved as something... You know, I mean, I had nothing to do with it, just something that happened worldwide. But it's like old cars. And it's like anything, people collect stamps. I mean, I can't see the sense in paying a million dollars for a stamp that you'll never use. At least I can pick up a, a vintage guitar and play it, and I can record with it, and I can... <laughs> but people collect everything, you know? And it just, it's something that evolved. And I just started collecting them. Once I realised what was going on, I started collecting them and had a... I still have quite a few, but I've sold a lot of them off. I go to the, said the Melbourne Guitar Show and move them off there. But it, it, it's something just just evolved, and we've got our Australian maiden by far we are the most famous collectible collectible guitar in Australia. Mm. There's no doubt about that. And I had a massive collection; they're all gone. It's all, I've sold a whole lot of them, you know. Prigor Martin is a really interesting phrase. Uh, specifically, it means Martin, Martin guitar made before World War II. Um, in reality, it means a Martin made before the changes they made that uh, we consider to be significant that happened around World War II. So pre-war Martin can mean a guitar made during the war. And it's interesting to hear people fighting over that one. Um, but 
if you want to if you want to be really really tightly specific about it, it's the change in the bracing that they did uh, that manifested itself right around 1945. Uh, they they switched over from what's what the world is now um, quite comfortable talking about the so-called scalloped bracing, uh, and and went to a straighter a straight bracing that's a heavier weight, and and the skeptic in me says. Yeah, they just figured out they didn't need to do that operation. The uh, believer in me says, well, they, uh, they were responding to people using heavy strings on their guitars uh, just as they say they were. And I don't know which is the truth, and I don't think they do. Um, but uh, pre-war Martin to me means a scallop-braced, uh, lighter-constructed guitar of the steel string variety. And that's an interesting bit because uh, Martin hadn't been making steel string guitars until effectively about 1930. So what does that mean? Uh, uh, Pre-war Martin is a steel string guitar in my definition and that means it probably fits in the 1930 to 1945 range. It's not a very big window. Uh, in fact, it leaves off the first hundred years. Those are obviously all pre-war Martins and if you want to get cute about it, there's pre-Civil War Martins and pre-World War I Martins. Uh, and as you go back farther and farther, you would think, uh, because the population of those is smaller, uh, you would think that those must be the most valuable ones. Older is better, right? Well, not really. Pre-War Martin, in my definition, is also a guitar that today people want to use to play music. And that typically means a steel string guitar, uh, more or less means a 14 fret guitar and that puts it in squarely in that steel string range. Um, it doesn't mean that they're better guitars, they're just of a different style. And clearly Martin's early instruments are very lightly built, very delicate and, and beautiful beyond description sometimes. Um, but um, that's, that's how I see it. So once again, that was Frank Ford that you just heard talking about some pre-war Martins as well as Owen Ray right before him. And now we're going to move into our third section of this podcast. We're going to talk about some interesting instruments that these guys have found uh, over the years. Because you got to imagine working in the vintage market, you're probably going to stumble across some interesting instruments, probably some really old ones and some strange ones. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think this is a compelling element of going to these shops because each of these guys have in the back room a little yeah. collection of their own. <laughs> uh, some back rooms are bigger than others, George Groon, um, but an amazing opportunity to really learn from these guys what makes something so unique, going down to the different bracings, the different woods that were used, things that can't be done anymore uh, for various reasons. So all of that has uh, a big element to the compelling portion of this industry and why I think vintage guitars are so interesting for people to learn more about and to uh, uh, to learn from. One of the compelling elements uh, that I learned about the vintage instrument uh, industry really came from Richard Gillius in um, San, Santa Cruz, California. Here we go. Uh, wonderful guy, has an amazing history, especially about um, Martin guitars and a real, real love for what he does. So that's uh, Union Grove Music in Santa Cruz. And so we're going to hear from him talking a little bit about uh, what he's come to learn about the Martin story. And we're also going to hear Frank Ford right after him 
talking about the same subject. My last trip to the Martin factory was about three years ago, and I went had uh, an embarrassing situation. I was asked by Dick Boak to uh, help him redisplay some 1830s Martins that had been out to the photographer, and uh, he was time constraints so he said would you redisplay them for me in the museum I said I'd love to because it gave me a chance to handle some of the uh, really precious Martins from that period and uh, the display cases were unlocked and I was sitting there with an ivory necked Martin in one hand and another beautiful ivory necked Martin in another hand and the alarm bells went off because they forgot to defeat the alarm system and uh, all the tourists were pointing to me and I was very embarrassed and then later that day, um, I was doing research in their archives, and it was a Friday, and uh, it was like being a kid in a candy store. I just lost track of time, and the next thing I knew, there was a night watchman standing over me, asking me, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, I'm doing research, and he said, who let you in here? I said, oh, Dick Boak gave me permission. He said. Don't you realize that the factory closed two hours ago? <laughs> so I was politely tossed. <laughs> We're not in the collectible guitar business. Yes, we deal with them. Uh, we did, in fact, just sell uh, an extremely collectible uh, Martin D28. It was made in 1939. We acquired it from its original owner about 30, 30, 35 years ago, um, who got it as a present when he was nine years old and never really learned to play it. Um, we sold it to a gentleman who uh, lives down in Southern California now, uh, and he just recently decided it was time for him to sell it, and so we sold it. Uh, it, it was an instrument that was made in 1939. It had never had even the smallest amount of repair work done on it. It had never had the action lowered from the factory. It had its full height saddle. Uh, it was still playable with stout bluegrass action. Didn't need the infamous neck reset. It didn't need anything. Uh, it was absolutely stunning guitar. Uh, and it sounded so good that I used to borrow it as the benchmark by which we would judge other guitars, absolutely puts the lie to the guitar has to be played to sound good. Um, but uh, eventually it came time to sell it, and it sold for uh, literally, uh, let's see, now, just short of four times as much as an equivalent vintage one that had had a fairly extensive repair work um, that we'd sold the year before. Uh, so that's an example of the, one of the rarefied ones that we get into, but it is not our business. Our business, we hope, uh, will remain as much as possible local, locally focused, uh, working with musicians, and as much as, part, as possible to be part of the community we live in. So once again, that was Frank Ford and R Richard Gellis right before him, all talking about Martins and some of the instruments that they have come across over the years. Next up is Norman Harris talking about a couple different brands of instruments that he happened to have in the store the day that Dan interviewed him. Well, I can't help but ask about the holy grail that you're holding. Okay, this is, uh, 
This is probably the ultimate in a jazz guitar. This is a D'Angelico New Yorker, and this is one of the last ones that John made, and his protege was Jimmy DeQuisto, who is also a world-renowned builder who's no longer with us also. Um, but this was the ultimate in a jazz guitar. I got this guitar from a guy named Ralph Grasso, who played with the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, and they played with Frank Sinatra and a lot of other big acts. And D'Angelico was a boutique maker that built for a lot of these top players. They would do it to their specs. Um, it's I, He built maybe a thousand instruments in the course of his lifetime. They were all handmade. Most of them were for the top players of the time. And, uh, you know, the workmanship is the ultimate in guitar art here. I mean, you know, the tailpiece has got the stair-stepped Art Deco um, interesting pattern. The woods are absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's got uh, this Art Deco headstock, sort of like the Empire State Building. He was in New York, and uh, it, it just doesn't get any better than this. This is functional art at its peak right here. This is something that, uh, you know, would be very difficult to reproduce. Um, you know, a lot of the guitars like the Fender solid bodies and things like that, that's a guitar that's basically two planks of wood pieced together. I mean, it's done very nicely and the design is great and all that, but this is something where there's just a lot of workmanship that's involved and somebody would have to be a real craftsman to build this. This guitar over here is a 1960 Sunburst Les Paul and this is one of the most desirable guitars that you could buy. This guitar is currently valued probably around $300,000. Just an amazing example. This one's got the original hang tags and it's in stunning condition. And uh, this sort of got a lot of people involved in collecting guitars, this particular model. Uh, people saw Jimmy Page and Mike Bloomfield and uh, you know so many other great players using these and everybody had to have one. And these are, there's about 1,800 Les Pauls made in the late 50s with humbucking pickups. We don't know how many are still in uh, existence, and this one is almost like a like new instrument from that time. And Gibson's making reissues of these, and they're very nice and they're very functional, but this is the real deal. Yeah, that interview was uh, back in 2011, went to Norm Harris's Norm's Rare Guitars in Tarzana, California. What a charming guy. His wife was there. Um, it's The employees are like family, you know, just a really great place to be. And as Mike has mentioned earlier, a lot of celebrities come in and out. And uh, Jack Black was there when I was there, which was <laughs> awesome. Uh, we talked about chicken. I don't know why, but we did. And... Um, yeah, just a really neat environment. And um, and I love that segment that you found there, Michelle, because each of these stories, the D'Angelicos, have become like godlike and, you know, pre-war Martins and anything that Lloyd Lord had to do with. I mean, all of these are sort of, you know, created on the seventh day kind of <laughs> things, you know. I mean, just really, really important milestones um, in our industry as far as development and innovation. And the fact that these guys know the value, not just um, uh, how much, but 
historically, you know, why these are important and why this influenced the next generation of music making and the next generation of luthiers. I mean, it's it's kind of down to a science with these guys. And it's really, really neat because there's an amazing stories behind all of them. So I really appreciate you finding that one. So what's next? Next is a couple people talking about just the challenges and some of the benefits of dealing in vintage, how they got into it, and some of the interesting things that they have come across and their interesting perspective on how the market has changed. So we're going to hear from three different voices. Uh, first up, Richard Gellis again, and then Fred Oster, followed by Norman Harris. I think the biggest change is, is, is how people have uh, gravitated towards shopping online, uh, which of course has developed over many years. Um, watching uh, local population not shopping online anymore, so trying to compete online uh, and find ways to improve our business. I'd say that's the biggest change that has hit re our, my store. Those are your challenges too, it sounds like. Yes, every day that's a challenge. Um, and uh, we've shifted our product mix uh, as a result of it, um, trying to shift a little more away from standard lines of product or carrying less lines from vendors and moving more into used and vintage and uh, improving our repair department and, and our services. So what's your favorite aspect of being in the business? Um, I would say, as far as product is concerned, uh, research in, on, on really old vintage instruments. Um, and my other favorite thing is talking to my old customers, who I still have quite a number that come in. I think because I've been in it for a long time and I had to, over the years, you know, you're, if you buy instruments, you're putting your money where your mouth is. And, not, and it's also not like, you know, looking at a catalog, I'll take three of that and two of that and so on. That's a different kind of thing. That's all money. Can I make money selling this? When you're dealing with old stuff, you're making a lot of decisions based on your expertise, based on your understanding of the history of that company or the desirability of that particular instrument. Because rare doesn't mean it's good. So you're looking for good things. And you eventually develop an eye if you are smart and if you're really smart, you don't think you know too much. So you're always learning stuff. And um, eventually you wind up you know, putting out that, you know, on your shingle that you can look at other people's things. That's what you do. Um, and you, uh, you create an air of reliability about you. And of course, um, this air of expertise which you acquire um, I think part of it's like early on you tell people you're an expert and then eventually you see enough stuff you become an expert. <laughs> but you have to kind of put out that you are another, it, to see the stuff. So when I started looking at violins back in the mid-70s, I think, it was, I was going to European auctions looking for other antique instruments and I started seeing violins and being, became fascinated with them. The amount of detective work it took to really figure one out. Not like looking at a Martin guitar from you know 20 feet away, and I can, you know any guitar guy who's really a guitar guy can look at that guitar and by seeing the shape of the peg head, and you think Martin guitars are all 
square in the head, but seeing the shape of the head, how rounded off it is, the shape of the pickguard, how big it is against the rest of the guitar, the architecture of the guitar, basically. Any of us could probably tell you about what year it's from. You know, without the serial number, based on seeing lots of little things, and you just add them up. With guitars, it's actually a lot easier. Well, gee, it's got, it's a D28, it's got a herringbone, but it's got really big dots in the fingerboard, so it can only be a 46. <laughs> you know, and you just put all that together. Um, with a violin, it's a little more complicated, partly because people have done lots of alterations over the years. So if you're looking at a violin that's 400 years old, that's 400 years of people messing around with it. How many times do people come in thinking they had a Stradivarius? Um, a lot. <laughs> I think years ago was a lot more. There had been a certain amount of media attention to things like that, so people can now look online and figure a lot of that out. Stradivarius label, well, it's probably not right. You know, we have the standard line, you know, hundreds of thousands of violins were produced in German and French factories in the old days with these labels. And they're, you know, they might be perfectly good functional instruments, but a lot of them were from the Sears catalog. So you just have to take that into consideration. And you have to, um, I tell people to consider the source. If this was something that your dad gave you when you were nine, he wasn't going to give you a Stradivarius because you didn't have money enough to have a violin worth more than your house to give to your kid. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't have a Bugatti in the garage. Probably not, looking at your split-level house. And it, so a lot of it is where something comes from, the provenance, the history of it. And that is helpful um, when somebody's saying, should I bring this in to show you? You know, if it was something that you played when you were six, no, I'm not sure I want to see it. You can take that to somebody else. Um, but otherwise, I'm happy to look at things, and I can sometimes even tell people before they come to send me a couple quick photos of it. And based on five or six shots, I might say to them, look, this isn't really worth your time to travel all this way. Like as a guy coming in at two or so from Richmond to show me something. And, but it was probably something where he sent me photographs and I said, hey, you, brought, you should bring that in to have me look at it in hand. Because nothing quite is like having it in your hands. That's why I don't do, photo, I don't do appraisals from online photography. I can maybe say it's if, if it's junk. And a guy sent me photographs of a guitar yesterday that he said was a Martin from the 1870s. I'm like, great, that's easy. Photographs are of a 19th century guitar in a wooden box, wooden case. That was a Martin knockoff from the period. And, I could, and he had photographs inside the sound hall showing the back brace clearly stamped A. Martin and Company. Stamped a couple times on the back brace. I'm thinking, Great, there were a lot of people jumping on the Martin bandwagon in the 19th century. And I have another guitar here, branded GR Martin. So if, you're, you, know, if you can have a guitar called Martin, then you, you, know, you went through town saying uh, you have Martin guitars. And this was clearly not a Martin guitar. But he'd been told it was a Martin by various people because it was basically that shape had a square head 
And Martin, you know, always had those square heads. Anyway, so that's, the appraisal business is looking at things for people constantly. Mm. And, and getting better at yourself as you do it, as long as you have an open mind. Your competition, how, how, how has that changed? Well, um, you know, in terms of competition, um, because people know that it can be lucrative, there has been a lot of people that have jumped into the market, you know, especially in the vintage uh, guitars. You know, on the new guitars, it's pretty cut and dry. And I think really, you know, in order to buy things, uh, in order to be a successful store, the key is in the buying. And you have to be select about what you buy and you have to know what your clientele is and what they like. Um, in terms of competition, on the new guitars, you know, you have to pick and select through a lot of the manufacturers and try to pick carefully what you think your customers will buy. In terms of vintage guitars, the value lies in the model, the originality, and you have to be an expert to be able to determine whether something's been refinished, whether parts have been changed, whether there's uh, modifications done to the guitar, and that can affect the value greatly. A guitar that's 100% original uh, to a collector is what they're most desiring. And then, you know, guitars that have had some mods, there are players that like them and players that will buy them, but they go generally for a fraction of the price of a completely original instrument. So, um, you know, if you're going to jump into this business, you better have some background knowledge and know what you're doing, otherwise you're going to buy some things that aren't what they're purported to be. Well, one of the big changes in competition, I would guess, has been the internet, but something that you were taking full advantage of. Yeah, you know, uh, up until a few years ago, being in California here, we get a lot of the big groups that live out here and it, you know it's sort of a lucrative area and you know we would get investors and collectors and big groups um, the internet uh, I, I preferred to sell face to face and talk to people and you know hear a voice and see a face and I'm old school that way and I've fought it tooth and nail the whole way but now I've kind of succumbed to the fact that the internet is where everything's at today and it gives you an expanded market throughout the world and um, you know we I think we have a good reputation in terms of you know uh, describing the instruments accurately and trying to you know let everybody know what's original what's not um, that's very important but the internet has really opened up our business tremendously and it's exp I mean everybody's on the internet now so uh, you know when fax machines first became popular uh, you know we did fax business and that kind of thing but the internet I kind of resisted for so long and now I've given in so but it's really improved our business and we're doing a lot of international business and this is one thing that we did really well in the United States is built these guitars steel string acoustics electrics arch tops thin bodies solid bodies um, and the main manufacturers Gibson Fender Martin Gretsch Rickenbacker Mose Wright on and on um, that's something that we did very well and I think the rest of the world is come to see that. So it's been an international business for us. At one point, a lot of our business was to Japan. Now we're doing a lot to Europe and Asia and, uh, and uh, every corner of the world.
Can you tell us a little bit about your view on your niche in the industry as opposed to pianos or, uh, or other instruments? Okay. Um, this is something that I think is kind of interesting, you know, because a lot of the times, you know, uh, a piano store has to cultivate a client. Uh, how many pianos is somebody going to buy during their lifetime? If they buy one piano, that's it. So you cultivate a client, you sell them a piano, and you never see them again other than maybe a repair or something to that effect. With guitars, people collect guitars. I know people that have 300 guitars. So, you know, when we cultivate a client, a lot of times it's a repeat for many times over. Um, people love guitars, each one of them is different, each one of them does something that the other one doesn't, and people collect them. So we're very fortunate in that when we make a customer, a lot of times it's a customer for life. And we're glad to see them again, and uh, you know, sometimes they want something to add to the collection, sometimes they're not using something, so they'll trade it towards something else that they would like to use. So we've been very fortunate in that respect. And I can't think of any other instrument that people collect in quantity like guitars. Okay, that was Norm Harris, uh, one of the great guys of the uh, vintage guitar market. And I'm really glad to have the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit more about where we are now and where we're headed as far as selling vintage guitars. We talked earlier about um, Harry West and really kind of how this started as used instruments having a value and slapping the word vintage on it to mm -hmm. uh, to differentiate between those that are just used and those that actually have historic and monetary value to them to how we're selling them now. And Mike, maybe you could talk a little bit about our next voice. So the next person we're going to hear from is David Kalt. And David founded a website that you may have heard of called Reverb.com. And what Reverb does is it's kind of like the eBay for musical instruments. You're allowed to sell instruments, whether you're a single person just selling what you have, or a store um, that wants to sell online. It's, it makes it an easy way to do that. Um, and you can sell brand new or vintage. and that's kind of where we're getting into um, current day vintage markets. Um, not everybody can make it to the Norm's rare guitar type, type stores anymore. Um, so David's providing a resource online where you can still hunt for these instruments um, without leaving your home. So we're going to hear from him talking about how he inspires customers through used instruments. Because we're so focused on used, we have to inspire people. We have to tell them stories. The same stories you would get maybe in a guitar store. Some of those guitar stores don't exist. Some of those old timers who, have, who know the stories of these old instruments or why a Moog um, keyboard is, you know, is relevant to a certain sound or what, that, you know, what, what uh, synthesizers Prince used on Purple Rain. Like helping people connect the dots between tone artists and inventory and that's what we're doing all day long so um, I think it's really important to other than just say here's a listing um, buy it <laughs> it's really important to like help give people context um, and we do that online and we do that really well so that was David Colt talking about the use intermarket market and how it's inspiring just 
people to check out these different instruments and their different sounds. Yeah, we are coming full circle, it seems, from the old days of doing it, where you'd have to hunt and hunt and hunt to find something. Now you just click online and you have 12 different choices. Kind of amazing. I don't know which one's better. Because <laughs> back in the day, you could probably get way better of a deal because right. people didn't know what they had. Um, so nowadays, it's probably a little trickier, but definitely way more accessible than it's ever been. So we're going to go in the way back machine to the beginning of what I consider the uh, the vintage market to um, a woman that we were very uh, lucky to interview and get to know, Kay Coster, who had uh, Coster's Guitar Center in uh, Rockford, Illinois. Uh, she passed away in 2014 and donated a lot of her uh, archives to the NAM Resource Center, which is a wonderful opportunity for us to learn a little bit more. Uh, even at the time of her interview, I didn't know as much as I know now, just having gone through those archives. Um, she was very much involved with the National Guitar Company as far as giving them ideas of designs and uh, model ideas that they should be coming out with that she knew would sell to her customers. Uh, not only being uh, running a store, but also teaching guitar at many different levels on many different types of uh, guitars, slide, steel, all that. Uh, Kay was just an amazing resource uh, for understanding really the used market back then. When she started in the 40s and the 50s, everything was used, and there weren't a lot of guitar stores that carried used instruments. It was considered sort of a, ah, eh, you know, why get that when you can get a brand new instrument? And so a lot of used instruments sat in closets and went into attics and garages, which was great pickings for people like George Groon, who would come a decade later and see the value in that. But Kay was actually selling them right along with the, um, the new instruments, thinking that she could get people that maybe couldn't afford a brand new one to at least start making music. And she would even give free lessons if you bought a used instrument, thinking that those folks were the ones that really needed a discount to get started, at least maybe for their kids. Hey, you get a couple of free lessons if you buy that used instrument. So she was really encouraging of people to pick up that used instrument before there was a great value to it. So I, I think it was really important, and I appreciate my team going along with this, to add Kay even though her interview didn't specifically talk about vintage guitars, she was really among those pioneers that said, you know what, there is value in this instrument, even if there isn't uh, monetary value. So let's hear from the great Kay Coster. Even after I had my store, somebody, a guy came into, I remember him in particular, he wanted a tailpiece put on his Gibson, and he had the tailpiece. Okay, so I knew that I would have to drill a little bigger hole in the end and take a very small drill. You never start with a big drill because you could crack it. Anyway, this guy comes in and, and he said, I'd like to see your repairman. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm the repair person. You do this? Yeah. I said, and we put it up on the thing and he showed me what he wanted done. And I said, uh, just have a chair and I should about a half hour. I wasn't busy. He said, well, uh, you're going to do this, huh? I said, yes, I have done a lot of them, really. He said, well, I'm going across the street and have some coffee. He couldn't stand to watch. <laughs> so, yes, I felt, uh, you know, yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I'd be on the floor with my ratchet screwdriver, the back end, the lower part of the basements and showmen and bandmaster amps had 29 screws this long. And I didn't have an electric screwdriver at the time, so 29 screws. And some some of the men would come in and say, Kay, what are you doing on the floor? So pretty soon they'd be down the floor helping me, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we had a lot of fun. I I think I'm one of the lucky people in the world that I got to do what I really like to do and still able to do it. Because I've been doing this since, uh, I think, uh, the year after Columbus came over. (laughs) (laughs) Close to it, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So that was Kay talking a little bit about how it was a little different at the time to have a woman who was running the shop and fixing those guitars and dealing with the customers. She just has a very unique perspective on the era. Last year, going to hear a little bit about where the vintage market is going and just some of the variables that can affect the market in 20 years. So we're going to be hearing from George Grun, and even though the interview was from 2007, what he says still holds up today. Well, you know, the market in the future is, of course, going to depend on what musical and demographic trends are going on then. Uh, But I can't tell you what's going to be made new 30 years from now. Is today's guitar, banjo, mandolin, electric, or acoustic going to be a revered item 30 years from now? Several thoughts. One, today's guitar is not better than the true golden era vintage. When I started out, The golden era vintage guitars were not as old as today. The oldest Stratocaster in the world when I opened up my store was 16 years old. The oldest Fender guitars were broadcasters, they were 20 years old. A 1940 Martin guitar was 30 years old. But those were the ones that we still revered. We knew that those were the good ones. They may not have been all that old, but they were no longer in production. The new ones were different. What made them good was not age. It was that they were different from the new ones. They were made right. They were the archetypes. They remain to this day the archetypes. The new ones right now are better than the ones new 30 years ago, or even 37 and a half years ago when I opened the doors to my store. But they're not the Golden Era Originals. They're not as good as the Golden Era Originals, but they are a whole lot better than the ones of the 70s. Now, 30 years from now, I was talking about, gee, we don't know if we're going to get Sitka Spruce or any other spruce 10 years from now. Mahogany, I was talking to Jean Larivet at the last NAMM show in January of 07, and he told me that his wood supplier told him that his next container of mahogany might well be his last. Martin has started substituting woods like sapile for mahogany on the style 15s. You can't get the stuff. Brazilian rosewood you can't get. Indian rosewood at least is currently available, but Nicaraguan and Honduran rosewood, that's already now going to be on Appendix 2 soon. 
stuff like Madagascar rosewood, well, it's not on CITES at all, but it's rapidly disappearing. Tropical forests are rapidly disappearing. We're not doing a good job conserving our own U.S. forests. We're cutting them down and sending all the wood to Asia. If 30 years from now, availability of materials isn't good, that could affect the market such that today's guitars they're made of real wood. The other fact is that what are Martin, Fender, and Gibson going to be doing 30 years from now? Okay, that was George Groon from Groon's Guitars in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, it was uh, a, a reminder recently when we were talking about vintage guitars, I wanted to do one more shout out uh, as we close this episode, and that's to the late R.C. Allen, who built guitars in the Los Angeles area in the 50s. You know, he um, owned the very first Bigsby solid body electric guitar. And he went on that antique road show, um, <laughs> you know, again, at the height of the vintage market when everybody is scrambling to see what they have in their closets and under their beds. And, oh, my gosh, I might have enough to buy, you know, finish paying off the house and all of that. <laughs> and so he went on the antique road show to get a value. And they did not air that segment because RC no, knew more about the guitar than the appraiser. <laughs> so they thought the appraiser looked kind of bad in that segment. So poor RC never got the love, but uh, he's getting it now. So uh, talk about the interesting stories from the vintage instrument. That's, uh, that's certainly one of them. I want to thank you guys, uh, both Mike and Michelle, for helping out with this uh, very important episode. Appreciate the extra efforts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's <was> fun. <Jinx. laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening and be sure to tune in to in 2 weeks for our next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.